0: Welcome back for our final study in the book of Ruth, chapter 4 this morning for this year's Bible B. And uh, as I've done for each one of these studies, I think I will read the text. But uh, for those who are taking notes, let me just give you a, a heads up on how we're going to divide the chapter. Uh, we're going to tackle it in three sections. The first 12 verses of chapter 4 we'll call Bo- uh, Boaz redeems Ruth. In verses 13 through 17, Boaz marries Ruth. And then the final section, 18 through 22, we'll call that the genealogy of King David. But let's go ahead and read from chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down and he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel, concerning redeeming and exchanging, to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belong to Chilion and to Malon. And also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab, And Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. All right, so as we're just starting chapter four, of course, it's directly connected to the events that have preceded it. And where we left off toward the end of chapter three is that one critically important night when Naomi had counseled Ruth to go down to the threshing floor and to meet Boaz there, and she very appropriately, very wisely, uh, but very shrewdly, by the wisdom that the Lord had given her through Naomi, uh, interacted with Boaz and and made known to Boaz her interest in uh, a marriage with him, and he uh, declared his interest in a marriage to her. And so where we left off is both Boaz and Ruth want to get married. And because Naomi has been the one behind the scenes counseling Ruth in her efforts in this direction, we also know that Naomi wants the two of them to get married. So everything seems to be heading toward a marriage between Ruth and Boaz. They desire to get married and even Naomi in this case wants both of them to get married. So the question is, why don't they just get married? It's the very next day. Why don't they just go find someone, uh, one of the elders of the city, uh, one of the, of the, the spiritual leaders of the city, and just go ahead and get married the next day? The problem is, of course, that we have a greater issue at stake here, and that's faithfulness to God and to his word as revealed in the law of God. So there's a godly desire in Ruth's heart there's a godly desire in Boaz's heart, there's a godly desire in Naomi's heart, but godly desire is not in and of itself enough to give grounds for what is about to take place. They also all have to honor God and his word as revealed in his law. And we're talking about here this law that we studied already back in our previous studies which is um, the the law of the kinsman redeemer, and the fact that uh, unless that law is honored, things will not they, the two of them will not be free to marry. Now, also at the end of chapter three, Boaz has made a promise to Ruth, and the promise he's made is not to marry her. The promise is, I will do everything in my power to possibly marry you. I will get your circumstance, your situation resolved, and I'll do so tomorrow. And so the chapter opens up the very next day here in chapter four, and uh, Boaz has an intention in his heart to follow through with the promise that he has made to Ruth. And so what we see here is that as the chapter opens up, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. We're talking about here the gate of the small town, the small city of Bethlehem. And uh, while all of the the chap- chapters up till now have really been outside of the city of Bethlehem because they've mostly taken place in the fields of Bethlehem, now we're actually in the city itself. And the gate of the city is where The most important business of the city was conducted. This is where the elders of the city would gather and meet at a certain time each day, and they would be available to interact with any of the citizens of the city, any of the people, the inhabitants of the city that needed help, needed guidance, needed counsel, or needed a wise decision to be rendered by the leaders of the city. And so Boaz goes to the appropriate place. This is This is like going to city hall in modern times. This is where business can be accomplished. And we're talking about the business of her situation and whether she is free to marry someone else or not. So he goes to the city gates and he sits down. It's a small detail, but what that signifies is he is there in order to get some circumstance that he's involved with resolved. It's a signal. Him sitting down is a signal I need help from the city elders. I have business to um to actually resolve here. And what we see by his simple act of sitting down, it reveals two things about Boaz. We've already learned from previous chapters a lot about the character of Boaz. He's a uh, he's a very good man. He's a godly man. He is now revealed though in this detail of him taking care of this situation the very next day and going to the city gate. He is a man who honors God and honors God's word above all else. He doesn't just act on his own personal desires. He's acting out of faithfulness to the law of God. Second, we learn that he is a man of his own word, meaning he's made an assurance. He's made a promise to Ruth the night before. He said, I will take care of this situation. And so he follows through with the things that he promises. Super important thing for young people to learn, and that is if you ever give an assurance to someone that you're going to take care of something, you're going to take care of some business, something important, that you follow through and you actually take care of that. You, You demonstrate you're faithful to your own word. The reason why that's so important is because we all lean on for not just our lives in this world, but for our lives for eternity, that God himself is a person of his word. That whenever God gives a promise, he always, 100% of the time, faithfully follows through and fulfills what he has promised. And if we're the people of God, we're called to become more and more like him. And so our life in this world should be a life in which we are growing more and more faithful to our own word so that we become more and more like God who is faithful to his word. So he is a man of God. He's a man of his word. And then the third thing that we learn about him that we haven't really seen as much up until this point in the story in the uh, displayed in the life of Boaz, and that's he's a man of initiative. Now initiative simply means someone that's willing to actually go out and take charge of getting things done that need to be done, so he is not waiting here for the elders of the city to come to him. He's not waiting for Ruth to come along and remind him he's not waiting for Naomi to come along and remind him and beg him to do the right thing He goes up, he gets up early that next morning and he goes directly to the city gate. Understand that Boaz was a fairly wealthy man. And this was right after the time of harvest. Normally during this time, there would be lots of business for him to conduct because he's gathered a full harvest of grain. And so instead of going to work his normal responsibilities in his normal business, he sets all of that aside this morning and he goes and he takes care of what matters most, which is honoring his word, and honoring the Lord, and resolving the situation. And he takes charge of doing that. Now, that doesn't mean, though, that he's a man of initiative. It doesn't mean that he's a man who is in control of this situation. He's not in control of the situation. He is depending upon the Lord honoring his own word and honoring the godly desires in his heart. He can't control what the elders will decide at the city gate. Neither can he control what the other kinsman-redeemer will decide. He can only put himself in a situation where the Lord can reveal and make known through those decisions what the Lord's will is for his life. So we also see, therefore, revealed here, he's a man of faith as well. He's trusting in the Lord in this circumstance. Rather than trying to take control of it himself, he takes charge, but not control. And that's a very important distinction as we see these events playing out. So he goes to the city gates. He sits down. He... um, is intending to meet there with the elders of the city. You might, for your notes, you might want to, uh, we won't turn and read it, but in Proverbs chapter 31 verse 23, that's just one of several passages from the Old Testament that indicate to us that the city gates were where the elders of the city would sit and meet and conduct the business of the city. So having sat down signaling to the elders that he's there for a purpose. What we see happen next is very interesting, which is the man that stands between him and the possibility of marrying Ruth and redeeming her circumstance, that man happens to walk by. Now, it's not unusual that that man would have walked by because the city gates are the location through which all of the business coming into and out of the city would have to pass. But, just as he sits down, apparently that man walks by. And so we see here the what we can call the hidden hand of the Lord, the influence of the Lord in the circumstance. And we see some early indicators here that the Lord is working with Boaz. The Lord has a plan. The Lord is bringing everything into the right arrangement of this man coming by just when Boaz sits down. And in this circumstance, as he walks by, Boaz calls out to him. He calls out to him without using his name, and he just refers to him as friend. Now, what's interesting about that, the fact that this man who is the other possible kinsman redeemer is never named in the story, is because ultimately, as we're now hundreds of years later reading this story in this book, this other man, this other kinsman redeemer, had an opportunity to do something very special and to ultimately be someone very special. And the other kinsman redeemer, as the story unfolds, is given the option of stepping forward and acting in obedience and faithfulness to God's law and fulfilling the role of kinsman redeemer to Ruth and to Naomi and ultimately what we're going to see unfold and you've already read the chapter you're familiar with it he chooses not to redeem he chooses at at first it seems like he's going to step up and redeem but later when he finds out all of the details he he just makes a decision it's not in my personal best interest i'm going to i'm going to lose money in this deal and in in the decision to save that money but not honor the Lord above his own finances, he is going to lose an opportunity to become someone noteworthy in the history of Israel. And so he passes into history as an unnamed person. He lived his life. His life had its own significance, but it had no great significance in relationship to that Lord's unfolding purposes of Israel. So he remains, this other kinsman redeemer remains an unnamed person through the entire story. As opposed to, or in comparison to Boaz, whose name becomes one of the great names in the history of Israel. Now, maybe Boaz never did anything as great as Moses. Maybe he never did anything as great as Abraham or as great as any of the other most famous, like King David, who would become one of his descendants. But what Boaz does this day and what he then does because of what happens this day for the rest of his life, which is he becomes a faithful husband to Ruth he becomes a faithful provider for Naomi, and he becomes the father of all of the descendants that will will be produced from his line, which will eventually lead, as we see at the end of the chapter, to King David himself, and even beyond King David, will eventually lead to the birth of Jesus into this world in Bethlehem. We understand from that that Boaz becomes one of the most important characters in the entire history of the Old Testament. And so right here in the greeting of Boaz to the other kinsman redeemer, we see these two different men, both in a similar position, one stepping up and being faithful to God and his word, putting God's word above his own personal benefit, and then we see the other man placing his own personal circumstances above his honor for God and his word. And one fades into the background, and the other comes into the forefront and remains in the spotlight as God honors the name of Boaz for all of the succeeding generations of history. It would be, I want you to think about it from this perspective it would be as if you had an opportunity at some one critical moment in your future. You don't know what moment that would be, but you have an opportunity that the Lord gives you to honor God above everything else and to obey God above everything else. And it's going to cost you some sacrifice in your life to do that. But as you honor God and obey him, God causes your name to be known, not just at the time that you're alive, but causes your name to be known for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years into the future. And God, as a result of that, causes your name to be known all the way into eternity itself. That's the circumstance that we see unfolding with Boaz here. So Boaz calls to the other kinsman Redeemer, he says, sit down here, which signifies... I have some business to do and it involves you. And then he calls to the elders that are gathered there and he specifically chooses 10 of them, which was the minimum number of elders that was necessary at the city gates in order to get this kind of business accomplished. And Boaz, in front of the other elders, they're acting now as witnesses of the transaction that needs to happen between Boaz and the kinsman Redeemer. Boaz starts a conversation with the kinsman redeemer. Now at this point in the story there's new information that's introduced that hasn't been introduced to us before and that is Boaz tells this kinsman redeemer Naomi and the other man would know who Naomi was. He would be familiar with her because she was a close relative of the other man he informs the other man that Naomi is attempting to sell her field. Now, a field would be a plot of land where um, there could be grain grown like Boaz's own field that we saw earlier in the story. We haven't been told up until this point in the story that Naomi was looking to sell that land, but essentially that is her signaling that she is poor, that she is needy, and that she is trying to sell the land that belonged to her husband and then her sons after her, but both her husband and her sons have died. She's attempting to sell that land in order to simply support herself. She is seeking a redeemer for her difficult circumstance. So he informs the man, this field is available to purchase from your close relative, Naomi. Naomi. Now, um, in that circumstance, I want to remind you, I've given you this passage before, but the Old Testament law of God, law of Moses portion that's in view here is from the book of Leviticus. We won't turn there and read this because it's a long section, but this is where you'll find this law. Leviticus chapter 25 verses 23 through 55. Now that long section gives all the details. Of God's law for the redemption of the property of a widow who has lost her husband, and in this case, like with Naomi, has also lost her sons, and who would be legally qualified to redeem that property if she were ever to choose to sell it. And so, in this circumstance, Boaz essentially says to the other kinsman redeemer, This property is available. If you pay Naomi this price, and we don't know exactly what the price was, that part of the story isn't uh, necessary for us to know. If you pay Naomi this price, you essentially gain control of her land, her property that formerly belonged to her husband and to her sons who have died and have passed away. Now, when I say you gain control of her property, this is an important thing to understand in terms of how Israel was meant to understand their relationship to the land that we call the promised land. You know the story where the children of Israel were in Egypt and they were slaves in Egypt to Pharaoh. And the Lord sent Moses to deliver them out of Egypt, to bring them across the Red Sea, to bring them in the 40-year-long journey through the wilderness and eventually to the edge of the River Jordan. And then he, he caused them to cross the River Jordan, enter the Promised Land under the leadership of Joshua, and then they conquered the Promised Land and settled it. But what was their relationship to the Promised Land? The relationship was this. The children of Israel did not technically own any portion of the promised land. This is an important detail. If the children of Israel who were living there and settled there and considered the land upon which they lived their property, if they didn't technically own the land, then who did own the land? And the answer to that is the Lord himself was the owner of the land he promised the land to them. He led them in. He gave them control over that land. He transferred that land from the prior inhabitants of the promised land to the children of Israel. And they were then functioning like the Lord's caretakers. This is the Lord's land. It belongs to him. He's the owner, but he's allowed the children of Israel the blessing of living on the land belonging to him and taking care of it for him. So when a kinsman redeemer was to redeem a plot of land, he's not gaining full ownership of the land, he's gaining control of the land. So what, what this kinsman redeemer would be buying He's, he would be buying, if he paid this price to Naomi, he would be buying the right to use that land for his own purpose for a specific period of time. That specific period of time was until the year of Jubilee. So at the end of every 50-year time period, the Lord would... Uh, He would require his people to celebrate a special feast called the Year of Jubilee. And there were many, many details about the Year of Jubilee, but one of the most important ones was any land that had been transferred away from the family that was ordained by the Lord to be in charge of that land, that land would be returned to them. So this man would be purchasing the use of that land until the end of the next 50-year time period. We don't know where they were in relationship to that 50-year limit, but we do know that he'd be purchasing just simply the use of the land until the end of that year of Jubilee time, and then the land would return to Naomi if she was still alive or any of her descendants if she ever did actually have any descendants. Now, what would be the advantage though of gaining the use of the land? Well, the advantage would be if he's a farmer, he can plant more crops on that land and then he can gain the food that's harvested from that land. He can either eat it for his own family or he can sell it to others. And so this was a, a business opportunity for this man. It was an opportunity for him to gain more wealth by the investment in the control of the land for that time period. And so this man sees that opportunity. He understands that I have a chance here to to increase my personal harvest. And he makes the decision, I will redeem the land. I will pay the price to Naomi for the control of the land that she and her family are in charge of. Now at this part, Boaz introduces and he does so cleverly by not giving him all of the information at once. He waits until the man makes an agreement, yes, I will purchase the land, and then he cleverly introduces, Boaz does, a second part of the responsibility that this man would have if he redeems the concerns of Naomi. And that is, he says to him, if you purchase this land, then you're essentially agreeing to fully redeem Naomi and all that belongs to her. Now, at this point, one of the things that belonged to her was the uh, the daughter-in-law that came with her to um, to uh, Bethlehem from Moab, and that was of course Ruth. And so he identifies that if you purchase the land. You will also be obligated to redeem Ruth in this circumstance. And you can connect for this in your notes, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6, which describes that part of the obligation. So there were really two things involved here. There's the redemption of the land, and there's the redemption of the family, which is represented by Ruth and her presence here as the surviving widow, of one of the two sons of Naomi. The the land redemption is highlighted in the Leviticus passage I gave you, and the family redemption is highlighted in the Deuteronomy section. Now, by redeeming Ruth, if the man chose to do so, what he would be obligating himself to do would be this, and that would be to marry her and to have a son with her, to raise that child, provide for that child, but not so that that child would be part of his own personal family, but that that child would then uh, continue the family line of her husband that had already died, so that that name of that that family line would not come to an end in Israel, so that ultimately that portion of what he's invested, not just in purchasing the land, but in providing for Ruth, providing for Naomi, providing for the son that would be raised, all of that money would ultimately be lost to him because it would not be included in his own inheritance passed on to his other children, but would simply transfer to the son that would be born by his marriage to Ruth. So at this point, the Redeemer suddenly realizes that this is going to be a huge investment, far more than just the cost of the land that would be involved. And in order for him to do this, it would require a great personal sacrifice of his own finances. He would be essentially losing a large chunk of his personal wealth and investing it in someone else's family and the future of that family. Now, why would any man do that? The answer is, the only motivation for any man in Israel doing that would be to honor God, to honor his word, and to honor the Lord's purposes for his people, Israel. There is no practical good reason why any man would choose to do this. There's only a spiritual reason to do so. And so this man is weighing in his own mind And in his own heart, there's the benefit of honoring the Lord, the benefit of obeying God's law, the benefit of being a blessing to the whole nation of Israel and the tribe of Judah by doing this. But what I'd lose is I'd lose a large chunk of my personal wealth, and I'll never gain that back. And that would be too big of a sacrifice for me to make. And so he backs out of the opportunity and the option of being a redeemer to Ruth and to Naomi and to raising a son in order to sustain that family's name. Now, at this point, we're told that um, he, according to the custom of attesting, meaning just uh, some formal way of making sure everybody in the community knows that a real transaction has taken place here. He does something that we don't do in our culture anymore, and it seems a little bit strange, just a little bit different than something we would do. But he he reaches down and takes one of the sandals off of his own feet and hands it to um, Boaz in this circumstance. And this is all going back originally to a passage um, also in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25, verses 7 through 10. Originally, in that passage in Deuteronomy, the taking off of the sandal was done by the, the, um, the widow in this circumstance. And she would, she would in a sense, like uh, do it as a dishonor to the man that had refused to redeem her. And she was to not only take off his sandal, but she was to spit in his face, which uh, still to this day, even in our culture, is a very great insult. And the point of that would be to highlight that this man is choosing his own wealth over his opportunity to serve the Lord, to obey the Lord, and to honor the laws of God and the word of God in this circumstance. So there's no spinning in the face that takes place here. What what we see is this is a fairly friendly circumstance, Um, It's not one against the other. They're not pitted against each other in any kind of way. But at the same time, the taking off of the sandal is a symbol of dishonor for this man. And that's why, as I mentioned earlier in our study, this man is never named, and he kind of fades out of the story. He fades out of the picture at this point. And looking at it, we can only say he missed what I would call a spiritual golden opportunity. And that golden opportunity now passes from the other kinsman redeemer into the hands of Boaz. And Boaz is now in the circumstance to step into the role that the other man has vacated. It's in Boaz's heart to do so. And he immediately takes, again, taking the initiative, stepping up and taking charge of the situation, he immediately... Um, embraces the option that he now has as the next in line as a kinsman redeemer, to um, to redeem the land that belongs to Naomi, which would be essentially him committing. I'm going to provide for Naomi. I'm going to make sure that that uh, she has enough finances to survive, and he is going to marry Ruth. And in doing so, he's going to raise a family, not for his own name, but he's going to raise a family for the name of the husband that had previously passed away. Now, um, Boaz calls on the elders that are gathered there, the elders of the city, to be witnesses of this transaction that's taken place, the legality of what has happened not just from a a social legality standpoint, but from a spiritual legality standpoint. Because what's being honored here and what's being obeyed here is the law of God, the law of Moses. And in doing so, uh, as Boaz steps in to the role of the kinsman redeemer, there are several things that are being revealed again about him. Number one, Boaz is displaying in his actions that The one relationship that matters most to him in his life is his relationship to the Lord himself. He's obeying the Lord. It's he's not just acting out of affection or love or desire or interest in Ruth. He does have a strong interest in marrying Ruth, but that's not the first and foremost thing that's motivating him. What's motivating him is his love for God, his love for God's word, his love for God's law, and his his opportunity that's now been presented to him to honor God above all else. Second, he's acting out of not just love for God, but he is acting out of love for two others in this circumstance. His love for Naomi, who is a a relative of his, a close relative of his. He is committing to provide for this godly widow in Israel. He's committing to provide for her not just for as long as the price of the land lasts, but he is promising to provide for her for the rest of her life until she draws her last breath in this world. Second, he is clearly motivated by and acting out of love for Ruth. He doesn't know Ruth that well. It's not like they've dated for a year. It's not like they've hung out and gone to a lot of different activities together. He's only really met her a couple of times. He met her at the beginning of the story when she came to glean from his land, and he has a a wonderful, godly, wise interaction with her, an appropriate interaction with her. And then she came to him that night at the threshing floor, and he sees her true character revealed in that interaction. He sees wisdom in her, he sees her faithfulness to Naomi. He sees her faithfulness to the new God that she has embraced in her faith in the God of Israel. And he knows this is the woman that he wants to spend the rest of his life with. And so he shows true love for Ruth in this circumstance as well. Also, what's being revealed here is that Boaz shows that he has a value of his reputation. He's handled everything just the right way. In the right sequence, in the right order. He had a desire to marry Ruth, but it wasn't right in the eyes of the Lord or in the eyes of the community for him to just run off and marry Ruth without going through all of these steps that led up to this happening. So he values his reputation. This is something that God teaches us in his word that a good reputation is of greater value than any other treasure you'll ever possess in this world. How others look at you, how others perceive your character is very important for the Lord's for the fulfillment of the Lord's purposes in your life and whatever assignment the Lord has given you in this world. He values his reputation and he protects his reputation by going through all of these steps in the right order. And now calling not just on the elders, but all of the surrounding people that were gathered at the city gates and calling them to witness that he has handled this in the right way, and in a way that uh, actually honors the Lord. And he, of course, then, not just by his decision to go there early that morning, but his decision now to step up at the key moment, and to marry Ruth in the eyes of the community, he's showing that he is a faithful man of his word, which is what he had promised that he would attempt to do, to Ruth in the events of the night before. And then finally, and most importantly, this is the most important element of the whole book of Ruth, Boaz is now stepping in to the most important role of his entire life. And that is he is serving as what theologians call, Bible scholars call, a type of Christ. A type of Christ. What that means is, God has throughout the Old Testament scriptures, he has given us foreshadows of who Jesus would be when he entered the world and what Jesus would accomplish. And in stepping into this role as kinsman redeemer, Boaz is symbolizing Christ in a very important way. What way is that? That is that as he redeems Ruth, so in the future, Jesus will redeem his own bride. His bride will be the church and that redemption will be something that will last like Boaz's relationship with Ruth will last for the rest of their lives in this world. When Christ redeems the church, it will last. It's a relationship, a marriage that will last for all of eternity. But when Boaz redeemed Ruth, this is why we went through all the details of the transaction a few minutes ago he is actually making a great personal sacrifice. He is losing something of great value to him. It's going to cost him quite a bit to redeem Ruth because he's paying the redemption price and the bride price. And in doing so, he is making a sacrifice to gain a bride forever. And in the same way, when Jesus went to the cross and sacrificed himself for us by offering his own life and and shedding his blood for us. He is purchasing, in that act of sacrifice, the church for himself for all of eternity. Now, at this point in the story, there are witnesses at the gates, and those witnesses speak up, and they declare that the transaction that's taken place is legal in the eyes of the community and legal in the eyes of the Lord. Everything has been honored as it should. And they then, the witnesses, pronounce a threefold blessing on Boaz and his marriage to Ruth. The blessing starts with each of the the parts of the blessing starts with the word may. And what we see from that is this blessing really takes the form of what we call prayer. Because it's not really possible for one of us to bless at the level that they're seeking for Boaz and Ruth, the lives of anyone around us. Now, you can, you can actually do things for people to your left or your right or in front of you or behind you. You can do small things that function as a blessing in their lives. But what they're really asking for the lives of Boaz and Ruth is a blessing that only the Lord can give. And so they're really declaring this upon their lives they're pronouncing this blessing on their lives but it's a it's a pronouncement of faith they're trusting that because the Lord has been honored above all in this transaction because the law of God and the law of Moses has been honored above everything else in this marriage that's taken place that the community is confident that the Lord will respond to his people honoring him and his word and his ways by pouring out a blessing from heaven upon them. So the three blessings are, may the Lord make Ruth like Rachel and Leah. Now you should be familiar with the names of Rachel and Leah. Rachel and Leah, of course, were, were the mothers of the 12 sons of Israel the sons of Jacob, who then later developed into the 12 tribes of Israel. So to say, may the Lord make Ruth like Rachel and Leah is a blessing saying, may she become like one of the great mothers in the history of Israel. It's a wonderful, wonderful blessing, not just for her life personally, but may she be as spiritually fruitful in her motherhood as Rachel and Leah were as they were blessed by the Lord in their motherhood second blessing may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem now Ephrathah was simply the name for the territory where the town of Bethlehem was located it was a region of the land that was that was greater than the city itself and then, of course, Bethlehem is the city where they were actually living. So it's a, it's, it, this second blessing has two parts of it. May you, Boaz and Ruth, may you act worthily in both Ephrathah and then, of course, be renowned in Bethlehem. To act worthily is, may you achieve influence. May you gain respect in the eyes of the community. May you live such a a godly life that others in the community will recognize your faithfulness to the Lord and your faithfulness to his word, your faithfulness to the Lord's ways. And may you be renowned in Bethlehem, meaning may you make a name for yourself, gain a good reputation as a family so that as other people in town look at your family, they see a, a shining example of what the Lord wants The families that belong to him to be like. The third blessing is is a reference again back to an earlier time in Israel's history. May your house be like Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah. Now Perez was one of the five sons of Judah. Judah is one of the twelve sons of Israel who became an entire tribal leader in Israel. One of the twelve tribes. So both Boaz and now Ruth by marriage, both Boaz and Ruth are of the tribe of Judah and specifically of the one son, Perez, who came from Judah. And Perez, if all of the people that were living, the the people of Judah who were living in that town of Bethlehem, if they were to trace their ancestry, they would trace their ancestry back to Perez and then to Judah. So may your house be like Perez, who was blessed by the Lord to be a son of great renown in Israel. All right, that brings us to the end of our first section, verses 1 through 12. And now we'll take a look at verses 13 through 17, the actual marriage between Boaz and Ruth. Boaz marries Ruth in this section. So Boaz is now legally free to marry Ruth, and he doesn't hesitate. There comes a point, and I want to speak particularly here to the young men who are one day going to be married but are not yet. There'll come a moment in your life when the Lord will make it clear to you. If you are walking with the Lord, trusting the Lord, leaning on the Lord, following the Lord, there will come a moment when the Lord will make clear to you this is the person that you are to marry and to commit to and spend the rest of your life with. At that moment, it's important not to hesitate when you know that this is the right one, the one that the Lord has provided. And you have gone through all of the appropriate steps leading up to that big decision, like Boaz went through all of the appropriate steps. There still comes a moment where you have to follow through and make the actual commitment that needs to be made. And so Boaz does this in this situation. But what I want you to understand is this, and this is kind of rehearsing some of what we covered already earlier in our study. We know from the night before that Boaz was convinced the night before that he wanted to marry Ruth. And we know by Ruth's actions that she wanted to marry Boaz. Plus we know Naomi as their counselor wanted both of them to get married. So all of those heart desires were already in motion in their hearts But there was something more important to Boaz even than the satisfying of his great desire to marry Ruth, and that is the honoring of God and the honoring of God's law, putting God's concerns above his own feelings and above his own desires. So I'll say this also to you young ones. There will come moments in your future where you will have strong feelings and strong desires, but God's ways and God's regulations that we call his standards may be at cross purposes to your own desires. Meaning there may come a moment where you will have the option to do one of two things. Do what you really want to do, or do what obeys God and honors his word. If you're going to be like Boaz, you'll put God's word and God's ways above your own desires and above your own feelings. If you're going to be like the other man, the other kinsman redeemer that's already faded out of the story, we don't even know who he was exactly, then you'll put your own desires and your own feelings above your desire to honor God and his word. But Boaz did it the right way. And so here at this moment, the Lord honors his willingness to put the Lord first. And the Lord has opened the door for him to now marry Ruth and he chooses to marry her, and he steps forward and makes that commitment to her. Now, at this point in this section, we're told that Boaz married Ruth, and then he went into her, which simply means that this is their wedding night, and they consummate their marriage. And in this circumstance, something special happens, and it happens the very first night they're together, and that is Ruth conceives a child. She is now pregnant, And it's identified as the Lord gave Ruth conception. Now, those are very, very important words in the story. The Lord gave Ruth conception. In other words, there is a natural process that takes place here. And that is true. It's biologically true that there's a natural process. I won't go into the details. I'll I'll allow your parents to describe that to you in more detail. But There's a natural biological process that happens here. But the fact that she conceived was not based upon natural cause. She conceived because the Lord gave her conception. And that's identified for us as a blessing from the Lord that he caused her to conceive. Now, even though this isn't in the story This does apply to our circumstances in our society today in a very important way. We have a big problem, and it's been in the news a lot just recently for good reason, but we have a big problem in this nation in particular, and the problem is the circumstance of what is called abortion and the fact that in uh, the last little, just a little bit over a generation of time, some 70 million babies have lost their life through abortion. This is something that is—it's uh, evil in the eyes of the Lord. It should never have happened, and so now the Supreme Court has made some some changes in the law of the land, so that um, there are some changes happening to the circumstance of abortion. But the people—and there are many people in our country who are lost in darkness, do not know the Lord, do not understand His word, do not understand His ways. Do not understand the Lord's standards. They don't really understand the Lord's will. And even if they did, many of them would choose to disregard it and disobey it and do what they want, putting their own feelings and desires above the ways of the Lord. But in this circumstance of this simple description, the Lord gave her conception. What we see is the blessing of the Lord starts in her womb from the moment that she conceives this new life. It's not just, it will be a blessing when the baby's eventually born. And any new baby that comes into this world, is it's, it's, it's the result of the Lord's blessing that that new life has come into this world, because only the Lord can cause life to come into existence. But what I want you to see is the blessing doesn't start at the point of birth of the child. The blessing of the Lord starts at the point of conception. And in order for there to be, you know, God forbid, an abortion in this kind of circumstance, what would be being aborted is not just the physical life of the child, but an abortion of the blessing of the Lord. And the last thing I want to do in my life is to stop the unfolding blessing of the Lord as he intends to pour it out in my life. And so she conceives, it's seen here as a a great blessing from the Lord. And at this point, what's interesting, what happens in the story is, There's a group that speaks up, because now, and this is all backstory, it's not actually described directly in the text, but we're meant to understand that this is happening. When she conceives a child, Ruth knows she's pregnant, and she apparently shares it, and who does she share that news with? Of course, I'm sure she shared it with her husband, and I'm sure she shared it with Naomi, but beyond her husband and Naomi, she also shares it with the women of Bethlehem. Remember, these are women that she's gotten to know from working side by side with them in the fields of Boaz, going back to the very beginning of the story. She's formed a relationship, a connection with them. They've recognized that her marriage to Boaz is a blessing from the Lord, and now her conception on top of the marriage is a second layer of great blessing from the Lord. And so it's appropriate for her to share the news of that blessing with the women that she's bonded to and she's connected to in the, in the town of Bethlehem. So as a group, the entire population of these women from Bethlehem speak up and they have something to say about the fact that she is now expecting a child. And what they have to say is really, they are speaking as a group prophetically. They're speaking as if they were prophets of the Lord, even though they are not actually prophets of the Lord. They are speaking the word of the Lord and describing what this blessing of conception means right now, but also what it will mean in the future. And that's why I say they're speaking prophetically. They're describing the future before it actually happens. And there's only two uh, conclusions we can draw from that. One is right and one is wrong. So either these women are really good guessers, meaning they're just guessing about what's going to happen someday in the future, but they could be totally wrong. Or they're speaking on behalf of the Lord himself, meaning the Lord is stirring this group to say what they say to Ruth and to pronounce this blessing upon her life that's about to change again. Remember, Ruth's life has changed tremendously in her marriage to Boaz but it's about to change once more in a particularly great and blessed way in that she's going to become a mother in Israel. And so these women now describe what will happen and they do so prophetically. The Lord is influencing them to say what they say. First, they say, blessed be the Lord. They recognize in a way that our society has lost sight of. They recognize that her simply being pregnant is a great blessing from the Lord. They recognize that this is the Lord's hand in giving this new life in her womb. Whereas our society would now say, that, that's not a life of any value or not even a life at all. It's just, it's just a clump of cells in her, in her womb that have no significance and no meaning. But it's actually something much more important than that. This is in the life of this growing child, this developing child, there is a growing and developing blessing of the Lord. And so they return some praise to the Lord for the great thing that he has done. Blessed be the Lord. And then they say, The Lord who has not left you without a redeemer. Now, you remember uh, Naomi's story earlier in the book. In fact, I'm just going to turn and read a couple of the verses back, all the way back to chapter one to remind us of where Naomi's heart and perspective was. And I want to remind you that these women are now speaking about Naomi, but Naomi's not pregnant. So why are they speaking about Naomi instead of about Ruth? Because this isn't just Ruth's story. This is Naomi's story as well. And this is where she was in an earlier time. This is after her husband has died and it's after her two sons have died, and she's still at this point in um, in a, a a circumstance that we would call a desperate circumstance. She's returned here in these verses I'm about to read. She's returned to Israel. She's returned to the land of Judah. She's returned to Bethlehem, but she's all alone except for Ruth. And this is what she says when the women of the town greet her in. Ruth 1 verse 20. Do not call me Naomi. Remember what her name meant. The meaning of her name Naomi. When she says do not call me Naomi. This is from your earlier studies. You should remember this. What, what did her, the name Naomi mean? Bitter. No. Oh, no. Oh, be, uh, pleasant. pleasant. So she says don't call me pleasant. Why would she not want to be called Pleasant. She's essentially saying, my life isn't pleasant. Nothing pleasant has happened to me in Moab. Nothing good is happening to me. I don't have a pleasant life at all. Don't call me pleasant. Instead, I want you to change my name. Instead of calling me Naomi pleasant, call me Mara. And Mara does mean bitter. She's saying, every time you see me, I want you to think of bitterness instead of pleasantness. Because why? Naomi felt like the Lord had abandoned her in her circumstance. The Lord had lost sight of her. The Lord didn't care about her. The Lord didn't love her. The Lord wasn't watching over her. The Lord wasn't being faithful to her like he was faithful to the other people. And so she had had come into this bitter heart perspective. Because she goes on to explain, For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly, with me i went away full and the lord has brought me back empty she's blaming the lord for her circumstances now here's the here's the question now that we're at the end of the story was the lord involved in her husband dying was the lord involved in her firstborn son dying was the lord involved in her secondborn son dying was the lord involved in her being temporarily in a desperate circumstance Yes, 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 and yes. But that's not the end of the story. Amen. Chapter 4 is the end of the story. And now her life is redeemed. Amen. Now her life is filled with the blessing of the Lord. And the Lord has specifically blessed her by bringing a kinsman redeemer, Boaz, into her life circumstance and blessing her by having him marry her daughter-in-law And now giving conception to that daughter-in-law. And now she's going to have a son through Ruth and through Boaz who is going to carry on her family name on into all future generations. And she doesn't see this yet. She doesn't know this. There's no way she can unless the Lord would reveal it to her. But this son is going to lead directly to the greatest king in all of Israel's history, King David. And then going even beyond that, this son that's going to be born of Ruth is going to lead to the greatest man that ever lived in all of human history. And even beyond that, it's going to lead to the Lord Jesus. It's going to lead to his entry into the world through this same family. So that's how ultimately pleasant her life ends up. So what's important for us to recognize here is Um, to have a long-range perspective, to have a perspective of trust in the Lord, faith in the Lord. You know, the Lord may take you. I can speak from personal experience and say, the Lord has taken me through temporarily bitter circumstances in my life, but he's never abandoned me to bitter circumstances. And he has progressively made my life more and more and more and more and more and more pleasant than it ever was to begin with. And that's in direct relationship to the grace that he's poured into my life to trust in him, to obey him, to honor him, to put him first above my own desires and above what seems best for me at the moment. And that's exactly what he does for Naomi in this circumstance. And so they say... Uh, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer. So the Lord shows faithfulness to Naomi. He has not abandoned her. And she is now at this point in the story, 100% fully restored from the bitterness that um, that had weighed down her heart back in chapter one. The women go on to say that the child's name would become renowned in Israel. Meaning this is going to be a famous child. and this this child is going to lead to a famous purpose being fulfilled. These women don't know that this child will be the forefather of King David and ultimately the forefather of the Messiah. They don't know this, but they're speaking again under the influence of the Spirit of God because that's exactly what the Lord is going to do. And then they say this child will restore Naomi's purpose in life she's older now. She's lost her husband. She's lost her sons. And she's kind of like for a moment in her life, she's kind of felt like, well, why am I still alive? What am I here for? What's the Lord's purpose for me? And now the Lord has made clear through the birth of this child, I have a renewed purpose. What's her renewed purpose? She's going to be grandmother to this child. She is going to embrace this child and help raise this child to fulfill the Lord's plans for the child. And the women add, under inspiration of God's spirit, that the child is going to grow up and the roles will be reversed at some future point. Naomi will take care of the child, but later the child will grow up and take care of Naomi. So there will come a point where Naomi will not be capable of taking care of anyone. So the question will be, who will take care of her in her old age? And this child that's being born of Ruth is going to be the one to care for Naomi until her dying day. And then finally, they add that Ruth has become to Naomi by being a mother of this child, a greater blessing to Naomi than seven sons would be. The seven sons would be the, the men being born to Naomi that should have the responsibility to grow up and care for their mother. And these women are saying essentially the Lord has poured such a blessing through this one child that they see that that blessing through through Ruth giving birth to this child is going to be greater than if she had had seven sons in his place. So we're told in the story that Naomi then becomes the child's nurse. She acts like what we would call a surrogate mother to the child. And uh, essentially what we're what we're seeing here is that she's She is going to play an important ongoing role in the raising of the child. And what's uh, particularly interesting here is how the child is named. Normally in Israel, this was a a typical pattern. Normally in Israel, uh, when a child was born, the child would receive a name, but there would be one person that was primarily responsible to choose the name of that child. Who was the one that would normally name this child in this circumstance? It would be Boaz, who is the father of the child. Interestingly, Boaz is silent at this point in the story. He does not name the child. Who names the child? The community of the women of Israel. Now, are they doing something inappropriate? I mean, can you imagine? It would be like if, uh, if a, a woman was in the hospital giving birth, and then all of the women of the community came into the hospital room and said, Hey, um, the Lord's really blessed you, and we've, we've come up with a name for your child. <laughs> it would just be a little bit odd, a little bit strange. But there's a reason for that in the story. And that is, it's showing us that, yes, this child is going to play an important role in Ruth's life. Yes, the child's going to play an important role in Naomi's life and in the life of Boaz. But this child is going to play an important role in the entire community of Israel. This child has a special assignment, a special purpose that is, this child is going to be the ancestor of King David and ultimately the Messiah. And so it's only appropriate in this unusual case for the entire community to participate in the naming of the child. And they name the child, the son Obed, which simply means servant. Which tells us this child has a special assignment to be a servant of the Lord, a servant of God's purpose in Israel and he will lead to the fulfillment of God's purposes through the service that he will provide. Now, uh, the very last section, verses 18 through 22, I'm calling this the genealogy of King David. It ends this the story of Naomi, Ruth, Boaz, and the whole book of Ruth, but it ends with a special spotlight. And the spotlight now goes beyond the personal story of Boaz. It goes beyond the personal story of Ruth and it goes beyond the personal story of Naomi. And it shows us that the, this is really ultimately the Lord's story. The Lord is arranging all of the events. The book of Ruth is one of the, the quietest books in the entire Bible. What I mean by quiet is there's, not, there's no great, obviously great magnificent events that happen in the book of Ruth. There's no parting of the Red Sea. There's no miracles. There's nothing at that, at that great and obvious level of, wow, the Lord was really at work here. So the Lord, we know, and we've emphasized that the Lord is at work, but he's at work in a very quiet way by bringing one particular family together to serve his purpose. And so the the story ends by showing us what that purpose is. The purpose extends beyond their life in this world. Boaz and Ruth get married and have a son named Obed. But Boaz and Ruth will die and never with their physical eyes, while they're alive in this world, they will never see the fullness of the fulfillment of what the Lord is doing through this family. They're not going to personally witness King David being born. That's going to happen hundreds of years after this. Nearly 400 years after this is when King David is actually born. And then, even way beyond that, another thousand years beyond King David, Jesus is going to be born in a stable in this same town, Bethlehem. And it's the most important birth that's ever happened or ever will happen in all of human history. And the Lord's saving and redeeming purposes for his people will be brought to fulfillment when that child comes into the world. But Boaz and Ruth will not be there to see it happen. So what we're shown here at the end of chapter 4, at the end of the book, is all of that is folded in to what starts this day. They won't see the end of the story with their natural eyes. They see only the beginning of the story. But they can be confident that the end of the story is guaranteed because of whose story it actually is. When the Lord starts a story, He always finishes it in a way that brings Him great glory and honor. All right, so that brings us to the end of our study. In the book of Ruth, it brings us to the end of this year's Bible Bee, and as far as we can tell the future, the end of our 11 years of doing Bible Bee studies together. For some of you who have been here that long, God bless you. It's been a blessing to be with you and to go through these portions of God's Word together, and I trust that the seeds that we've sown together will uh, one day produce the kind of blessing, maybe not to the magnitude of what we see unfolding in this particular family, But any seed that God sows is a seed that produces fruit that brings honor and glory to his name. So I pray that God will bless you in that way through these studies. God bless. Amen. 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 Amen.